Thanks, uh, Simon, very much uh, indeed. We're in the middle of our I Relate uh, series that takes its cue uh, from the fact that at the heart of the universe lies a God who is in relationship, a, a community God, a relational God. Uh, how God in himself lives in a mutually submissive, totally complementary, interdependent relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's out of that relationship that the world was called into being, out of that relationship that our relationships find purpose and uh, meaning and so on. Uh, and that's why we're obsessed with relationships, for good or for ill. It uh, lies at the heart of everything that we do. Every magazine, every article, every newscast is about, in one way or another, the way we relate. And so we pick up the theme this morning of marriage. And, uh, and this is a tough gig because uh, we've all got issues and sensitivities when it comes to relationships. You might want to turn to someone next to you and say, do you know, we're all sensitive about something. In fact, now you're sensitive about being asked to say that you're sensitive about something. But but you, you see, we're, we're all sensitive about something. So it, it, you might agree with everything that I say this morning, but that doesn't mean it won't step on a sensitivity. Uh, and uh, my, my only saving grace this morning is that if I upset everybody, at least it's fair. To, you know, I don't want anyone to feel left out that somehow I've skirted around your particular issue. Okay, so I'll, I'll try and I'll, I'll try and home in on because that that's the reality of our lives and the situations that we find ourselves in. So so we just recognise that together that it that it's hard and uh, relationships are hard and, and even if relationships are in a fantastic place just now. Uh, none of us will be immune from the fact that for others that we know, that's not the case. Or we will know in our own experience that there have been some tough days and some hard things. So uh, with that little rider of don't shoot the messenger, basically, uh, let's get going. So out of this relationship then, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God created man and woman, woman. Uh, and uh, both were created by God to display his image. Uh, and out of this relationship as part of creation, within God's design and purpose, it was that, that man and woman should join together and express the most intimate of connection and relationship. And so in that way, in that part, it's not the only way by a long shot, but in that way reflects something of God's image and God's glory. So after God's introduced himself in the Bible as a community being, let us make. So after he's introduced himself as a community person, after he's introduced himself as the creator, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It says, i.e., because of who God is and because of how he's made us, what will happen? For this reason, or that is why, because of how we've been made, because of who God is, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, before getting into all of that, I want us to press the pause button and to put the whole thing in its context by thinking about what marriage isn't before we think about what it is. Whatever the statistics tell us, 
whatever they say about marriage being in decline and so on, what's going on in our lives is the same as it's always been. People are looking for love. People are looking for what marriage represents. They might not think they're looking for it in marriage anymore, but, but what lies at the core of that search is still there and very much evident. For many people, the greatest step in their lives, apart from Jesus, will be to find someone to, quote, settle down with. For many who are not yet married, there's a desire and a longing that one day they will be, or at least be in a relationship that is long-term, is secure, that they can share life with. Memory lane. We'll build a world of our own that no one else can share. All our sorrows we'll leave far behind us there, and I know you will find there'll be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. Who sung? Seekers. That old, Tony, I didn't realize. I thought you were way younger than that. They sung it in which decade? 70s, yeah, top man. The heart of that is what we buy into as a culture. That I will find what I'm looking for when I find that one exclusive relationship. I know I'll find that there'll be peace of mind when we live in this world, this exclusive world of our own. If only I can find Mr. Right. If only I can find Miss Right. If only we can build that exclusive relationship, getting the the big C's of commitment and chemistry to work. If only then I will find what's eluded me in my life up to that point. There will be peace of mind there. This is what makes the Samaritan woman such a contemporary figure, even though she was 2,000 years ago. Uh, she lived 2,000 years ago, and Jesus spoke into her life in the way that he, he did. Here was a woman, if you think about it, who'd kept trying to build. To build what? She'd kept trying to build a world around an exclusive relationship. When we read about it in verse uh, 18, The fact is, Jesus says, you've had five husbands, and the guy that you're with now isn't your husband. You've missed that bit out just in the hope that you will find what you're looking for. Just think about this woman's journey for a moment. Not in any sense of needing to judge her, just feel the journey that she's been on. How many times has she had her dreams shattered? How many times her hopes totally disillusioned? And now she's trying once more outside of a conventional marriage. Hoping what? Hoping that somehow in this new relationship, this number six, she'll be able to leave her sorrows, her troubles behind. But what? Discovering in practice that her sorrows, her troubles, her unsettlement have pursued her from relationship one to two to three to four to five and now on into six. The PC didn't fight in her own private world. And this is such a modern critique of the world in which we live. So up to date, it's frightening. How many people are flinging themselves into relationship to relationship to find something that they're looking for? 
Or we give up on the search and get stuck in a relationship we have certain regrets about because we flung ourselves into it. One of the privileges and one of the pains of my job is that people invite me to share their something of their inner life, something of their, their marriage, often in times of need and, and trouble. And here is the issue. And, and it's not rocket science. People bring to their relationships, people bring to their marriages expectations, hopes and dreams that that relationship can never by itself fulfill. We do that with our children as well. We hope that our children will uh, live for us, bring a fulfillment and expectation that they can't deliver on. When I was uh, a teenager, I used to swim uh, for Cardiff City Swimming Club. See? Getting up in the morning before school, going and swimming up and down at 6 o'clock in the morning. What on earth was that about now? I've got no idea. They say it was character building, but it nearly killed me. And, and, and then you'd go and you'd spend the weekend on a glorious summer's day in a swimming pool all day for a gala. And uh, on the side of the pool, there would be some parents who were absolutely, totally going berserk about whether their child was winning or not. You've seen that, haven't you? seen it in football. Down at Portman Road, where I take my boys, one dad's now been banned from coming in. It's fantastic, isn't it? The kid's only about eight, because he, he, he can't contain himself with that sense of, go on, get in there, hack him down, do whatever you need to, son, type of attitude. Well, well he's putting on his son an expectation, his poor kid, who's quite good, actually, can never, ever deliver. Uh, and, and the same we see in our, in our, any relationships at work, but thinking this morning about marriage. So we bring into our marriage expectations, hopes, because of our need that maybe, certainly, our marriage cannot meet by itself. Will Carling, remember him? Rugby, memory lane this morning, isn't it? He had his life exposed when uh, he got himself into all kinds of pickle. He, he looked as though he was the kind of guy that had everything you would want. He had the success that people say they long for, the fame. He had a beautiful, successful wife. But it goes horribly wrong, and very publicly he splits from Julia Carling after being linked in some way emotionally with Princess Diana. Within months of the split and the Diana thing not working out, he's got a new girlfriend, Ali. And they soon have a son, Henry. And when Henry is just 11 months old, Carling walks out. When he becomes involved with Lisa Cook, the estranged wife of his friend, the ex-England player, David Cook. You couldn't write this in EastEnders, could you? This is someone's real life. The nation did at that moment, to be fair, raise its eyebrows in a kind of red-top newspaper, tut-tut-tut kind of way. I told you so. And so to defend himself... And you realize how desperate you are when you choose the Daily Mail to defend yourself in. Carling writes an article in the Daily Mail. This is what he says. After walking out on Ali and their 11-month-old son. I wasn't happy. <laughs> and therefore, I wasn't going to make Al happy. And therefore, I wasn't going to make a happy environment for Henry. If Lisa wasn't around... That's his new girl, just in case you've lost the plot. I still wouldn't be staying. It's not about Lisa. It's about me and Ali. 
It's not actually, is it? It's about him. I want someone I can visit the Grand Canyon with and tell them everything. Someone I can be at peace with all of the time. So now he's on his fourth successful, glamorous woman. It's an illusion. It's like the James Bond thing. Now, we buy into that illusion in some ways, all too readily and all too often. He's a victim of our culture. That's not to excuse him. And we can be victims of our culture also. That if I find the right relationship, it will meet my inner need. Oliver James, a clinical psychologist, writes uh, in his quite famous book now, Britain on the Couch. Uh, he's writing about while, while, why are we unhappier now than we were in the 1950s, even though we've got everything that we thought we wanted to have. He says, today we demand vastly more from our relationships compared to the 1950s. Like addicts searching for the fix of intensity and intimacy. Ironically, it's the broken bonds of love that are the greatest single cause of despair. Not a Christian, just an observer. Will Carling's experience, Oliver James's analysis, are spot on for this Samaritan woman 2,000 years ago. Five times she would have said to her mother, this is the one. Can you hear that conversation? Can you hear the illusion? Can you hear the mask? She would have gone back home. I've got to tell my mother. Slightly nervous about telling your mother by the time you get to the third, fourth, or fifth time, I would imagine. Uh, this is different. He, he, he's not like the other guys. He's not like that one. No, 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 no. This one will work out. This is different. I feel differently about him. We pray together. All that. You know, a sense of hope and optimism and, and, and what are we buying into there? We're buying into the illusion that somebody else, another flawed human being can meet my deepest need. It's an illusion. It'll never be true. It cannot be true. And now here she is with Jesus in that paralysis of disappointment. It's still not working out. She's still searching. Just as well, the eight-year-old boy who said, Christianity, you only have one wife. They call it monotony. But it's not funny, is it? Really? So there's a couple that were in a lot of trouble with their marriage, and they decided that they'd go and get some help. It was the last thing they thought they could possibly do to try and rescue their marriage. And they went and they went to see a marriage counsellor, which is a good thing to do. And they sat behind the uh, the desk of the marriage counsellor. The marriage counsellor sat them down and said, well, what seems to be the problem? With that, the woman starts to talk 19 to the dozen, and the husband's face just drops. And this just seems to go on forever. And probably would have gone on forever had not the counsellor got up from around the desk and put his lips smack on the wife's lips for a long lingering kiss. That stopped the woman in her tracks. The man was also looking in disbelief. He then went back around, sat back on his desk and he said to them both, your wife needs that twice a week. He thought for a moment, well, I can bring her in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The story of this Samaritan woman reminds us that we must look elsewhere for fulfillment and meaning because you cannot get that from another human being. So look at the story as it just unfolds.
Jesus is making it clear that he's offering her something much deeper, much more sustaining than what a human relationship can offer. And if you don't get from Christ what you can only get from Christ, you will not get it anywhere else. So if perhaps if you've got, still got your Bible open, look there at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And he says, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. I.e., Jesus has got something to give that no one else can offer. If you knew who it was who was here, if you knew what opportunity this was right before you, you wouldn't be faffing about with water in the well. You would be grasping something that is on offer here that you can't find anywhere else. While Jesus is talking about living water, she still thinks that he's talking about a running water. Instead of the stagnant water of a well, there must be a tap or a spring or something that would offer fresh water. And then Jesus homes in, look, everyone who drinks this water, he really raises the stakes, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. At this, the woman begins to think that there's some special water that she needs to get that will mean she doesn't have to keep coming back and forth to the well. With some urgency, she wants it. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Then, magnificently, as only Jesus can do, he makes this brilliant quantum leap. This water really will stop you being thirsty again. It will quench you forever, not the thirst for a drink, but the deeper relational thirst that your life exposes, which is why he says to her, you better go get your husband. How did that feel for that woman? Knowing that she'd had five and the bloke that she was now with wasn't even her husband. How did she feel when he said that? That's not what you want Jesus to say. You're totally exposed. Wouldn't you agree? Your heart is ripped open, laid bare at the well. It's like the village looking in on the dirt, the shame of your life. Go get your husband. So we zoom right in, verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered, everyone, because we now know what he's talking about. He's talking about a relational thirst that you have. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who keeps living like this will always be thirsty. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The water that Jesus gives is utterly able to quench your thirst. Amen. Fantastic. Absolutely true. So think about what that means for a moment. What that means in this context is that marriage isn't a cure for our ills. But it does mean that Jesus is our saviour. Wouldn't you agree? Because only Jesus can deal with the relational thirst that we have. It's a God and us problem first. It needs a God and us remedy first. What no relationship can satisfy, Jesus is able. Now, this speaks really deeply and profoundly into our marriage situation. If we're wanting to be married, and statistically most people do, then we need to acknowledge that our marriage will not, cannot, is not able to cure our ills. 
It won't do what we might be tempted to think that it will. And whilst we wouldn't be tempted to think that getting married will solve all our problems, we certainly can be tempted to exaggerate that that relationship will meet somehow my deepest need, and it won't. That's an illusion. That's not true. Life in Ipswich in 2012 is ample illustration, isn't it, of that truth. We all have issues. Turn to the person next to you and say, do you know, we all have issues. And the thing is, with your issue, with your issue, with your issue for identity and meaning, with your issue for a sense of inner well-being, with your issue of the need for forgiveness, with your issue of the need for hurts and pains to find a healing and a wholeness. If you take those into your marriage, expecting your marriage to offer you that forgiveness, to offer you that healing, expecting your marriage in some way to be your saviour, you will be placing on that relationship a weight it can barely bear. Anyone tracking? Does that make any sense? So if you're looking for a relationship because you're single at the moment, I guess you could be married and looking for a relationship, but hey, we'll start here. Come on, lighten up, it's just a joke. If, if you're looking for a relationship, from that premise, that the relationship will meet your deepest needs, two things I think will happen. Number one, you'll probably never find anyone good enough to do that. Because, you know, you'll get to know someone and they will not be perfect. That's the first. The second thing is, if you get to know someone and you believe the illusion that they're perfect, as soon as they get wind that you're hoping that they'll solve all your problems, they're going to run for the hills. We've got to deal with what's going on in us, whether we're single or whether we're married. And what's going on in us is we've got a desperate need for Jesus to quench our relational thirst first. Desperate need. You see, for married people, we ask the same question. Am I looking at my, uh, at my spouse to give me what only Jesus can? Because that's a weight too hard to carry for anybody, isn't it? Uh, am I looking to them to meet a need that I can only find from God? Uh, and so I find myself in this relationship and it's all about uh, what I can get because I need them to meet my need. And actually Jesus says go into marriage uh, focused on all that you can give and we'll come back to that in just a moment. And for those of us who have been married and are perhaps widowed or widowers or we have been married and we're now separated and divorced, there's some fantastic news here. And I don't begin for a moment to begin to be able to say to you that I understand the pain of losing someone that you've lived with all your life or losing someone that you hope to spend the rest of your life with and you lost that. I don't begin to say that I understand that pain. But I do know, I do know if God's word is true, that the relationship with Father God is big enough for that? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, Praise be to the God uh, uh, the fa- God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all, all, all comfort. Well, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that whatever happens relationally on earth, the relationship with God in heaven is big enough for that? 
Now, now that's, that's not a cliche or to say it's easy or to say it's a quick fix, but somehow don't we believe in the core of our being that whatever our relational circumstances are on earth, the living water is enough to quench our thirst. It becomes a faith and trust issue, doesn't it? That's what the Bible's saying to us. That actually we can cling to God with both hands and that relationship is big enough whatever our relational situation on earth. Blessed are those who mourn because they shall be, Jesus said, comforted. So marriage is not a rescue. You got that for our need and vulnerability. In fact, if you want to expose your need and vulnerability, get married. And if you're still not sure that your life's been ripped open enough and your inner world has been laid bare, have some kids. And if you're still not sure, get an untrained pet. And by now, your inner world will be displayed all over your house and probably all over your street. We've got to get these needs met first so that we can enter with the foundation, with the foothold of giving, not getting. And we'll come to that in just a sec. So what is marriage then? Very quickly, uh, because we know this well, marriage is uh, God's idea. Who made it up for this reason? It's part of the way we were created. It's not a cultural thing. It's not a Western thing. We might express it culturally in different ways around the world. But the principled idea is built into the very fabric of the way God made us. It's a good idea because God said pretty quickly, it's not good for man to be alone. Plenty of women that have very quickly said that, looking at a man. It's certainly not good to leave them alone. Uh, uh, And thirdly, therefore, in God's plan is that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There's a leaving and a cleaving. Now, you will know if you fly that takeoff and landing are the most risky moments. Leaving's the takeoff, cleaving's the landing. You can fatally wound yourself or your spouse with both of those. So if you don't leave properly from your uh, uh, maternal or paternal home, and you take that with you uh, into your marriage, you will know how fatal that can sometimes be. When you go back home for Christmas and you end up behaving like the little not the husband or the little girl rather than the wife. It's a sign that we haven't left properly. If we take too much with us, that's a bad thing. As we come into land, we've got to cleave. We've got to be united. We've got to be on an absolute trajectory of commitment that the we, sorry, that the I in both of us will become we. Instead of I, it must become we. And take off and landing, these are both crucial parts of what it means to be successfully married. And as we come into land, as we come into being united, I want to ask you the question, you might have been married five minutes or for 50 years, the question is, is the I in you still moving towards we? So for example, and uh, this needs to be true of every area of your life, not just physically. So I- I- emotionally, are there feelings that you don't share with your spouse? I.e., is the I still not we enough in your emotions? Are there things going on in your world that you do not share? Are you therefore not cleaving, uniting properly? 
or spiritually. It's so important that we're spiritually together. I've talked loads over the years about marrying someone that loves Jesus and why the Bible says right the way through how important that, uh, why impo- how important that is. Uh, so are you uniting spiritually in your marriage? Is that the journey you're on going from I to we in a spirit, socially, or do you still have exclusive friends that, that and somehow there's some distance there because you go back to your, um, I was tempted to say girlfriends because probably it's, it's, it's more a, a female issue, but that's a terrible caricature of which you can slay me. But, but, but maybe women are more likely to go and talk to their girlfriends and say things to their girlfriends that they jolly well should be saying to their husbands. It's about a fact they haven't united properly yet. Blokes do that the same, just in a different way. Blokes go, uh, uh, and then it's all done. It's way easier. Women make it complicated. Economically, is there still some pots of money that's yours and hers, his? Take off, coming into land, some challenges to think about. I want to draw just three things as we close. About what marriage is, how we relate... If we're taking our theme of I relate, God in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creates marriage in his image. What does that mean? The question we always want to know in a marriage, of course, is who's in charge? Who's in charge? But there's a different question that the Bible brings to us. And the question the Bible poses to us is this. It's all about serving. Marriage is mutual serving. The question the Bible poses is, how big, how great is your serve one to an, another? The who's in charge question has dominated all talk about marriage from a Christian perspective almost in the last century. From a theological perspective, we know, don't we, that men are in charge. Big cheer for the men. Let's try something slightly different then. From a practical perspective, we know that the women are in charge. Big cheer for the women. That proves my point quite amply. And so there's this theological thing and there's this practical thing. And Why? Because we're dominated by the Gentile question. What was the Gentile question? Who's in charge? Who's the master? And so Jesus speaks right into this with the disciples, doesn't he? Mark chapter 9, verse 33. You might want to turn to it quickly. I've got some of the verses on the screen. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Can you imagine that? Sitting down, verse 35, Jesus called the twelve. And said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus talked about the world's propensity to ask the wrong question. Matthew 20, verse uh, 20 to 27. You might want to turn to that for a moment. We'll just hang there for about a minute. What's the page number in the Pew Bible for that? For Matthew 20, verse 20. Sorry? 989, thanks, Anne, that's great. 989. Then the mother of Zebedee, magic roundabout characters, sons, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. 
What is it you want? Can you imagine this, asking this of Jesus? It's fantastic, isn't it? How blind, how big the illusion can be. Grant that one of these two sons of mine, which are the best sons that there have ever been in the whole wide world, grant that they might sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. How deflated do you think Jesus became at that moment? Uh, How desperate, how totally, oh my word, how long have I been with you? You don't know, verse 22, what you're asking. Jesus said to them, this is really important, Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? What was Jesus going to drink? The suffering, the cross. What preceded Jesus finally making the choice about the cross? Gethsemane, surrender to the Father. Father, not your will, but mine be done. Can you live a life of service and submission? Blatantly not. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom uh, they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this... (laughs) Don't you love it? The ten who only wished they'd thought of it first. Now very clever. When the ten heard, oh, you jolly stupid question that was. Your mother, she's a right one. Uh, uh, They're only gutted they missed out. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, you know the way of this world. You know the way people live. They lord it over them. That's how rulers and high officials and anyone who can grab any authority does. But instead... Verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What if the question is, not who's in charge, but who's the greatest servant? In the Trinity, remember the sets of relationships. Human theologians have tried for generations to work out who's in charge. They've written books and volumes and libraries of perhaps the father's in charge because everything issues out of the father. And then they find verses that that doesn't make any sense. So perhaps Jesus is in charge because he's been exalted as Lord of all. And then they find something else that doesn't make that any sense. Uh, God's not asking that question within himself. That's not the deal. It's a relationship where each gives way to the other. Remember, the the Son gives way to the Father, and then the Son gives way to the Spirit, and the Son honors the Father, and the Father raises the Son up, and it goes round and round. And we want to know, because we're human, fallen, Gentile creatures, who's in charge? And God just goes, yeah, yeah. Not interested even in the question. So with that in mind... We look at some of the verses about marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, for example, verses 3 and 4. Remember the culture where women are objects. Women are are property. You can do what you want with them. They're just like sheep and goats and stuff. Hopefully look a bit better, but they're just like sheep and goats. Um, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. It's hard to imagine how powerful that is in in that culture. Likewise, The wife to a husband. There's a mutuality that had been absolutely unheard of that Paul is talking about here. So we go to those verses in Ephesians that we know well for good or ill. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, make a jolly good job of serving. That's what you're called to do. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, get on with loving your wives and giving yourself to her completely. So who's in, who's serving who? Which way round is this? He brings it all together in Ephesians 5 verse uh, 33. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There's this mutuality that goes round. Who's in charge in the end? Jesus is in charge in the end. Because marriage is about me focusing on what I can give, not on what I can get. See how this takes us full circle. I can't go into marriage on the basis of what I can give if the reason I'm going into the marriage is to fulfill the needs. We're back to the Samaritan woman. If I'm looking for husband number seven because my needs haven't been met yet, what spirit, what attitude am I entering into it with? What spirit am I living for it in? It's all about getting and not giving. Secondly, if we take our cue from the Trinity, marriage is interdependence. This commitment of serving one another doesn't mean that we're the same, and it doesn't mean that we have the same roles or responsibilities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perform different roles. They carry out different functions. Husbands, for example, have a headship role. The Bible is clear about the responsibility that it puts on husbands. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It's tempting to use that as a proof text for some kind of lording it over your wife. Maybe, historically, that's what men have done. That doesn't make sense in the context of the Bible's teaching about giving way to one another's needs. Responsibility or headship here is just that. It's about taking responsibility. What did Christ do as head of the church? He took responsibility for the church, for her rescuing, for her saving, ultimately for her flourishing. It's about a call for men to take responsibility in their marriages, in their homes, with their families, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, men are called to rise up and take a lead, to take a responsible approach to their families and to their wives. Now, I haven't met a man who feels very competent in doing that. I'm not asking for comments. Partly because... We're fallen human beings. But also, and more wonderfully in a way, I haven't met men that feel very competent at doing that because they cannot do that by themselves. God knew that too, which is why he provided a woman who would be a helper. Kerry will tell you this much better than I ever could about the word helper being, uh, and the, the word is easer. This is not a weak word. This is the, the kind of word used of God when God comes into a situation and rescues it without which that situation would remain unrescued and unresolved. This is not some kind of weak role. This is an absolutely essential, crucial role to the relationship. And so God sets it up so that we desperately need each other to do what we need to do. And how do we find our roles? How do we fit into that place? We fit into it by saying, first and foremost, in this situation, in this context, I'm going to give of myself as fully as I can for the fulfillment and the betterment of the other. We are brilliantly made to depend on each other. And you would expect that 
from a Trinitarian God, wouldn't you? You can fight that, and many marriages do, and you end up fighting each other. Or you can receive what God has given as a brilliantly wonderful, totally majestic gift. And I don't know of a woman who wouldn't willingly serve, submit, if you want to use that word, to a husband who was in turn willing to lay down his life for her and the other way around. And it's just brilliant when in your marriage you find that sweet spot of being interdependent in that way. Of taking your responsibilities rather than demanding your rights. And discovering that as you take your responsibilities... Everything that you've longed for and more gets met in this relationship that is based on a God in heaven. Finally, lastly, marriage is a common mission. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is on mission together, wouldn't you agree? For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. That comes in a passage It's all about the Spirit making us new. All three of them are involved in the mission of God. And as we heard, perhaps I think it was on the first week, the first Sunday that we did, about how the the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit was open, inviting others in to share the blessing and the benefit of what they had and what they shared. And I just want to close with this, that our marriages are an absolutely fantastic opportunity for us to be on mission together. Because our marriages are a living example of the power of the gospel. Our marriages are an example of the king at work. In our marriages, we see his kingdom. Why? Think about it with me. Two sinners who by nature are selfish, who by nature want to do their own thing, who have little interest in naturally pursuing someone else's kingdom because they're always out for their own. Two people fallen like that, like all of us, coming together and learning to live in a mutually submissive, totally interdependent, on a common mission with God kind of way. For that to happen, you can only say the king is at work. The kingdom's here. As God brings two people together in that way. You see, because typically when you bring two people together, you have power battles. I know you haven't had that in your marriage, but some have. You have lists that people keep of what the other has and hasn't done. I know you don't have that, but some do. Pity them. Some marriages you have bitterness and acrimony. And pain and hurt. So when God does something in our marriages that exhibits lifelong commitment and service and love and interdependence and healing and renewal and restoration, people will see the kingdom at work. That's gospel, isn't it? Anyone still with me? That's gospel. Now, who can we invite in to that? Struck me really powerfully, as Andrew was praying before the service, uh, about our children being the first group of people that we can invite into that if we have children. 
They're not going to see it close up anywhere else. But they can see it close up in your marriage. But who else are you inviting in? What, what younger couple are you inviting into your marriage to see, to understand, to, to observe, to learn, to grow? Who are you on common mission with? I don't mean in terms of spouse. I mean as a couple, married couples. Who, who are you on common mission for? Who are the people that God would say, invite them in, that they might see gospel in your relationship? Now this raises all kinds of challenges. Some of us aren't in relationships. We're we're both Christians. That's a huge challenge. We're all coming at this from different places. But that's got to be the dream, isn't it? That we would find ourselves in networks of relationships where we see marriages that exhibit the work of the kingdom and so give honor and glory to the king. Let's pray.